Well, let's turn together to John chapter 20. We're going to look at this passage. We looked at it last time. If you were here last time, we looked particularly at the character of Mary Magdalene, who takes a significant part to play in the discovery of the empty tomb of Jesus and of the resurrection. And uh, she alerts the disciples. They come and look as we read and find the tomb. And then later on, she is sent back to the disciples with a message. Uh, I want to come back to this passage for a number of reasons. Michael Faraday was a great uh, uh, physicist, and when he was dying, some friends gathered around his bedside, and they they did what they tended to do in the 19th century. The 19th century, they took death quite seriously. They talked a lot about death. They didn't talk about sex, but they talked about death. Today, we we talk about sex, and we don't talk about death. But in the 19th century, they talked a lot about death, and they were very keen on getting the final words of people before they died. It was a great era for great final words before people died, apparently. And so, as they gathered around, they asked this great physicist, what are your speculations, they, they said. As you come to the end of your life, what are your speculations about the future and so on? And Faraday, who was a bit of a no-nonsense character, said, speculations? I have none. I am resting on certainties, he said. Resting on certainties. You know, when you're facing death, when you're facing the reality of the disintegration and the falling apart of being here, speculations are of no use to anybody. What you want are certainties. And the distinctive thing, of course, of the Christian message is that when it comes to this whole matter of death, and we're all dying creatures, the only question is whether we'll die sooner or later, younger or older, but we all will die unless Jesus returns again. What we really need are to build our lives on certainties. And that is why the Apostle John, along with the other New Testament writers, take their time to tell us the story of the resurrection of Jesus. It was vital that we understand that Jesus had risen, because the only basis of Christian hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he's writing to the Corinthian church that has been infected with some false teaching Somebody has been going around teaching the church that the resurrection is a spiritual resurrection only, and that it has already happened. And Paul is writing to them to say, look, the resurrection was a very physical event. And in fact, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And we are of all people, of all people the most miserable, because we have staked everything everything on Jesus Christ. And if Christ is not our contemporary, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are nothing and we have nothing at all. So, the resurrection is absolutely pivotal to the Christian message. And so, the the writers, as, as I've said, take time to spell out exactly what occurred on that morning. 
There are all kinds of speculations people have. I, I remember when I was at college a long time ago, and we would get into conversation with fellow students about Christian things, that they would bring up the same old red herrings. Well, hallucinations. These were hallucinations that these people had, and so on. Very easily, by the way, uh, destroyed the argument about hallucinations. Hallucinations are something usually only one person has at a time. It's not a group thing. You don't get group hallucinations, unless you're all an LSD, but then you're hallucinating all, all different things at the same time. Not that I speak from experience <laughs> firsthand, but from observation only, I have to, I have to emphasize. Um, I definitely didn't smoke anything at college. That's an absolute reality, neither cigarettes nor the other stuff. Anyway, back to the, back to the story here. These were no hallucinations. In fact, as you read the, the accounts, there are, there are in the accounts all the bits and pieces that suggest an eyewitness testimony, things that aren't neat and tidy. You bring the four gospel accounts of the resurrection together, and there's bits that are different in each of them, although the, the same message is there. You're seeing things from the perspective of different individuals who had a part to play, or they've, they've heard the stories of people that, that perhaps John doesn't mention, and their experience, and so on. And the reality is, if this was a concocted story, then people would have got their heads together, they'd have sat down, uh, like the session does when it's working on something, and we all thrash out a statement of some kind or another, or a policy, or a principle, or whatever, uh, and we do it so that we're all on the same page, and so on, so that we all understand all the arguments, so that if you ask us, you get the same story from everybody. It's not a concocted story. I'm not saying that, but it's an agreed-upon thing. It's something we've sat down and worked out what we're going to do, whatever. Now, well, there's nothing like that, because if you ask any one of these people, these four writers of the Gospels, you're going to get a slightly different take. They're looking at the same event from a slightly different angle, and they're telling their particular angle of the story. And John does that here. He, he, we, we spent time looking at the story of Mary uh, last time, and we have Mary's own individual experience. Uh, she finds the empty tomb. She has an encounter with Jesus. She tells us that she thought He was the gardener. She turned around. She didn't recognize Him at first. Uh, she's too distracted with other things. She's not expecting to see Him alive. She has no idea in her head there's going to be a resurrection. I just need to be alert to that. When I go around to the grave this morning, it's liable to be lying there wide open and there would be nobody. That was no more in her mind than flying in the air. Mary tells her story. Well, John gives us a record of the evidence of the resurrection from his perspective. And the first has to do with the empty tomb. Let me read it again. Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, there you have a, a reference. The person was there. They remembered it was still dark. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. There's, there's Mary's account. It was still dark. By the time she got there, when she got there, the stone had already been moved from the entrance to the tomb. Now, we've discovered tombs exactly like the tomb that Jesus was laid in. In recent years, particularly, a lot of archaeology in, in and around Jerusalem has discovered that where, where Jesus was crucified is almost 100% accurately where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built 
today. They've done all the work, all the research. In Jesus' day, that was outside the city wall. It was in a garden. It was near a small hill where regularly people were crucified. They've seen the evidence. They've found the evidence of crucifixions there. It all adds up. It all fits the story of the Gospels. And we're told about the tomb that Jesus was in, that it was a new tomb. What happened was when they started one of these new tombs, they would, they'd hollow out the rock, and uh, uh, that would be phase one. And in phase one, they would usually have three, like benches, one on either side and one along the back. Eventually, they would continue to hollow out as, the, as time went by, and they would start to put in kind of beds in which to place the bones of the dead bodies in a kind of long corridor. But, but a new tomb would not have that. A new tomb would only have like two benches and then the long bench facing you at the back of the tomb. It would not be very deep. The door would not be very high, maybe about this high, and you would have to stoop down to look in and to bend in order to go in. Notice how I just act out the part for you, just so you get the message as we go along. Now, that's the kind of tomb in which Jesus was placed. It was a brand new tomb. It was a wealthy man's tomb, and the body would have been placed on the back bench, so that as you're looking into the tomb, there you would see the body on that bench there in front of you. When Mary got there, the stone was rolled back. She didn't go and look inside. I don't know why. It was semi-dark, and why she didn't go and look inside. Was she scared? Maybe she was. Maybe you would be. But her first reaction was to go and tell the disciples. She she runs to them. And again, you notice the resurrection is not on her mind. She came running to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, John, the one Jesus loved, and and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. She is not thinking of resurrection. She's thinking of grave robbers stealing the body. That's what's in her mind. Or she's thinking of the enemies of Jesus going in and taking the body and putting it somewhere else so that his grave does not become a center for his disciples to make it a kind of monument and come back to it again and again and again to celebrate the life of the person who has been buried and dead in the tomb. And you notice that the plural in verse 2, confirms what the other Gospels tell us, that Mary, who'd got there first, was joined by other women shortly after she'd found the tomb empty, and together they agreed the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled away, we better tell the boys, and off Mary goes to tell the boys that Jesus has been taken. So, the first sign, really, the first matter is the empty tomb. And whether it's Romans or Jews, nobody ever is able to contradict that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Then we're told something else. We're told that when Peter and John got to the temple, look at verse 6, Simon Peter, John ran ahead. People sometimes say John was younger. No, I think John was just fitter, actually. And he got there in… he may also have known shortcuts, and he got there ahead of Peter. But when he got there, he did not go in. He kind of looked down a bit, but he didn't go in. And it was Peter when he got there. Peter is a very impetuous kind of individual. And it seems as if Peter 
did a kind of a rugby kind of tackle on the door, a kind of flying entrance in which, stooping down, he went, proceeding right through the door, right into the tomb. That was the kind of person that that Peter was. So, we read then that Simon Peter was behind John, arrived, went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now, there have been all kinds of speculation. What happened? Was it that the body of Jesus had disappeared through, become invisible, and, and disappeared through the strips of linen, leaving a kind of cocoon shape there on the bench? If that had happened, you would have expected that the that the towel wrapped around his head would similarly have collapsed in on itself. Or, or were the burial clothes lying as if they'd been taken off, and the headcloth as if Jesus had taken it off and wrapped it up and put it down before leaving? Either way, the thing that struck the men was that the grave clothes were undisturbed, that the sight was undisturbed. They, they found an orderly scene there. There was no sign of disruption. I don't know if you've ever been robbed. We went round to friends one Saturday night, kind of a last-minute thing, and when we came back, we saw as we drove up that the dog was in, in the kind of vestibule of the house, visible, and we thought, how did the dog get in there? We saw there weren't lights on that we hadn't left on. And when we got up the stairs and we opened the door, we discovered everything was all over the place, more so than it usually is. It, it, it was everything was everywhere. Our, our David went up to his room and he found that all 70 or 80 or however many of his CDs, they had a thing called CDs in those days, had been stolen. They'd gone. All kinds of things had gone. Chaos. If it was grave robbers, there would have been chaos. And what they found was order, a lack of being disturbed. And uh, remember, the body itself was valueless. It was the expensive oils and ointments. It was the very expensive linen in which the body had been wrapped that was the valuable item, and that was left undisturbed. And there was another reason why it wasn't a theft, and that is that there had been a Roman guard of several men parked outside, keeping watch to prevent that very thing from happening. They didn't want Jesus' disciples coming along, stealing the body, and then saying, He's alive. So, they kept a watch. So, there's, there's the clothes that are left lying, another indication. And in fact, John, we're told, when he saw it, John tells us that he believed. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus hadn't been, His body had not been stolen. He believed that somehow or other Jesus was 
The tomb was empty. Jesus wasn't there. Jesus was alive. I I think that's what John is reporting. Peter apparently did not come to that conclusion, although he saw with his eyes the same as John saw. And then as we we go further down, we we find uh, Mary Magdalene going and announcing to the disciples, we've seen the Lord. Mary had her own personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. Later on that day, in verse 18, 19, and following, on the first day of the week, that was the the day of the resurrection. They were there behind locked doors where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them. By the way, there is no place anywhere that says Jesus walks through walls. He has a body like you do. Can you walk through walls? Try it. No, it says He came and He appeared. He stepped out of the eternal dimension into our dimension, and He appeared, just as He will one day appear at His second coming. He appeared to them, and they saw Him alive. The disciples, we're told, verse 20, were overjoyed. They were glad when they saw the Lord. They weren't expecting to see Him. Later on in verse 27, Jesus, the following Sunday, the following first day of the week, comes back. He revisits the same group. Somebody hadn't been there. Thomas, we'll look at this in another occasion. Thomas hadn't been there, and Thomas had spent the rest of the week disagreeing with the rest of them and saying, you guys are out of your minds. Of course, he's not alive. He's dead. We saw him dead and buried. Dead men don't rise. In fact, if I you tell me he's alive, well, I want him to come and appear to me. And when I see him, I want to put my fingers in the nail prints, and I want to put my hand where they put the spear wound in his side. There in verse 27, Jesus comes to Thomas and says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out. Probe. Put Put your finger into my nail prints. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. In other words, in different places at different times, to different groups, to varying numbers, to individuals, to small groups, to large companies, the Apostle Paul says even to 500 people, more than are here in this room tonight, he appeared alive after his passion. This is precisely the basis for the Christian hope. The Apostle Peter, I often use these words at funeral services, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. That's the message, the Christian message And it's a message based on, built on, founded on the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. It is simply a fact for us to believe. But it's not only a fact for us to believe. There are other elements here that that I want you to to see. There are theological implications surrounding some of the details of the story. We We looked last time at the story of Mary, and we we saw her encounter with Jesus when she thought He was the gardener, 
and didn't recognize him at first, and in fact had a conversation with this individual and asked him where they had taken the body. Again, it's one of these proofs of the resurrection that that's what is on Mary's mind. Uh, Let me read you that part again. It's in verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting on, on those benches perpendicular to the front door, one on either side with the other bench where the body would have lain at the back, and the body's not there, of course, and the angels are there. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I I don't know where they've laid him. Having said that, we're told, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She was not expecting the resurrection. She is not expecting to find Jesus. And there's a sense in which the resurrected Jesus has been transformed. Our resurrection bodies are going to be similar to the way we look now, but thankfully, they're going to be better looking. Many of you have something to look forward to. That's a great encouragement. I certainly have. I want to have my resurrection body. I'd like to have it without having to die first, but, but the resurrection body is worth waiting for. But there is a there was to, to the, she was prevented from recognizing him. And that preventing from recognizing him was quite deliberate. This also happened when Luke records an incident on the road to Emmaus when Jesus joined a couple of men, and they were kept from recognizing him. Because he is teaching them something, both in the story of the Emmaus walk <coughs> And here in the encounter with Mary, how does she recognize him in the end? Did you notice? She recognizes Jesus when he speaks to her, when his voice is heard. And the theological implication of that is that from this point onward, that is in fact how people will come to recognize Jesus. In John chapter 3, for example, Jesus uses the image of Himself as the great shepherd, and He says this, uh, the sheep hear His voice. He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus is in the business of coming to individual people as He came to Mary and called her name Mary, and she recognized Him when He called her name. Jesus is in the business of looking out for people, His people, searching them out, revealing Himself to them, calling them to Himself by name individually, touching their hearts, getting their attention, drawing them to Himself. That's the work that Jesus is doing today. That's how He works and operates today. In John chapter 10, verse 14, there's a 
another verse. He says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. They know me. When I speak their name, when I call them, they recognize my voice. They they won't follow another shepherd. They will only follow me. Jesus, the great shepherd, is in the business of calling people like Mary to Himself. How did she discover Jesus? He calls her by name. And you're a Christian today. If you're a Christian in this place this evening, because Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, called you to Himself personally. You didn't take it as Him talking to a great crowd of people. You're all welcome round at my place. No, He spoke to you personally. It's a personal relationship. But it's more than that. There's more to this. As you come to the end of that little section, looking down in your Bibles, in verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary, she turned round and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. He wasn't saying there's something wrong in you clinging to me, but, but don't hold on to me because things are going to be different. We looked at that at some length last time. And so he goes on to tell her to do this. Listen to what he says. We didn't do this. I've not ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, now there is a very deliberate use of that expression, say to my brothers. Now, we know that the company of the disciples was a mixed company. There were men and women. They were brothers and sisters. But there's a sense in which, don't get me wrong here, there's a sense in which when God is talking to His church, He refers to them all as brethren because we are all sons of God. Yes, men and women. All sons of God. Sons and heirs because the Son is the heir. And we are all sons of God by gracious adoption, and therefore heirs of God. And so together, men and women are heirs of life in Christ Jesus. That's why the apostle argues in Galatians that we are all one in Christ Jesus, because we share in this adoption. Now, so when he says, go to my brothers and say to them, he is giving us an insight into the new relationship that His people, men and women, brothers and sisters, His people have with Him and with His Father in heaven. Look at what He tells them, what He tells her to tell them. Tell them, He says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Do you notice He's making a distinction but with some kind of analogy between his relationship with God, his Father, and our relationship with God, our Father. He does not say, I'm going to our Father. He makes a very clear distinction, doesn't he? One of the great uh, biblical exegetes, Lightfoot, puts it like this, disciples must never forget that whereas His Sonship to the Father is by nature and right, ours 
is only by adoption and grace in and through Him. Uh, So our relationship to God as Father is not the kind of natural relationship that Jesus has. If you were here this morning, you would have found out why, if you remember anything about this morning, because He is the Son of God by nature. He is the eternal Son of God. He shares the very Godness of God. He has always been the Son of God. We are not. But by gracious adoption, we become part of the family. That's what he means when he says, I'm going to my father and your father. St. Augustine, he puts it like this. He says, not, Jesus does not say, our father. In one sense, therefore, this is what Jesus is saying, in one sense, therefore, he is mine. In another sense, he is yours. By nature, mine. By grace, yours. That's what he is saying to these people. And you see, these words of Jesus through Mary to the disciples, I'm go tell my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He's saying this to them. He's saying this to these men. He's reminding them that what the resurrection does is it makes brothers, it makes us brothers of Jesus, sisters of Jesus. It makes us children of God and sisters and brothers in the family of God. This is the teaching of the New Testament. My father and your father. When Paul is writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, this is what he says about the resurrected Jesus. He is the the firstborn among many brothers. He's the first to rise from the dead. We're going to follow him in the resurrection. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, why did Jesus take our humanity? Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did He undergo the whole business of learning obedience through the things that He suffered? Why did He do all that? In order that He might bring many sons into glory. He endured the cross, despising the shame, in order that He might bring many sons and daughters of God into glory. Oh, you think of Ephesians 2, verse 18. Through Jesus, Paul writes in Ephesians, through Jesus, we have access by the Spirit to the Father. By His resurrection, Jesus has made it possible for you and me to have access through Him, by the Spirit, to the Father. Oh, you take 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, this same John who's learned the lesson that Mary relate to them. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. And he says, oh, the, the amazing love of God, the love of God that is beyond our understanding, the love that the Father has for us, that we should be called sons of God. And so we are. And though it does not yet appear what we shall be, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. How great is the love the Father has bestowed that we should be called sons of God. That's 
That's what we're called to in Christ. First John chapter 1, our communion is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ, because we're children of God. So the message is this, I'm going to my Father and your Father. Are you one of God's children? Can you call God your Father? Because you've been adopted into the family of God. Sons we are by God's election, who in Jesus Christ believe by eternal destination, lasting life, we now receive. but also to my God and your God. These brothers and sisters are brought into a new covenant relationship with God who will be their God. Some of these people who will hear this, and you hearing it tonight, many of you come from Gentile backgrounds, not Jewish backgrounds. You, like me, were aliens to the covenants of God, aliens to the promises aliens even to the the racial descent of the Messiah Himself. And yet here is the amazing good news of the new covenant, that through Jesus Christ we enter into this new covenant with God, This, this new covenant in which God says to us, to you and me, I will be your God and you will be my people, my God and your God. So, God is our Father, but He is our God. He is our God. That is, He is for us. And if He is for us, who can be against us? This is a big week in our country. And as we go into this big week to do our duty in so many ways, especially Tuesday as we do our duty, what we need to have as we do that is a a sense of the proportion of things, what is of far greater importance, and what will still be of importance 50 years from today, 50 million years from today, is that God is your Father and that God is your God. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that. And don't lose sight of this, that it is the great joy of our Lord Jesus anticipated in the Psalms, where the psalmist David is given to hear the voice of Jesus in anticipation of this future day as he is ecstatic with joy, as he sings to his Father, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in front of the congregation. I will praise you. Jesus is thrilled to share His glory with His brothers, His sisters, those who are now children of God, to share His glory with them. And in fact, He prays for them, that they may be with Him where He is, to share His glory and to enjoy the love that the Father has always shown to the Son from all eternity. That's our destiny. That's where we're going. That's something to warm your heart, something to live for, something to die for, something to live again for. Let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight, by the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would take these 
truths and warm our hearts, uh, encourage our minds, but bond us more closely together as those who know ourselves to be brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, and all for your glory, through Christ our Lord. Amen.